And Sean Webb is the author of Human Mind Owner's Manual. He's going to be speaking about these topics. And they have garnered him 1.4 million followers on TikTok. Huge thank you for coming on, Sean. Love the background. Uh, Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Whereabouts in the world are you? I am just north of Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, east coast of the United States. Well, your accent is not that strong for Carolina. Yeah, I uh, originally grew up in the Midwest. Ah, so I have no accent, right? I have a a friend. I used to work for Orange, so I have a lot of British friends. And uh, one of my British friends says, he goes, well, you speak like the King's English. (laughs) It's not the Queen's English. (laughs) I used to work in Arizona and I had a friend from Carolina. He had quite a twang. Yeah, a lot of of twang around here. (laughs) (laughs) That's more like it. All right. What on earth got you into this genre? Well, you know, I've been a, uh, a consciousness and human mind researcher for decades and had a consciousness experience, consciousness expansion experience of my own, which completely changed my life. I mean, it was a it was an experience that I later learned the neuroscience about that over 45 minutes dumped a ton of into my consciousness that I'm still unpacking to this day, uh, two decades later and uh changed my complete perspective about life um sean sean sorry to stop you can can we go over this more slowly and can you kind of set the table what led up to that experience what was your how was your day that day what was going on in your life um okay so i was in high tech for the longest time and i had attained a high level of success and at the age of 27, I had just bought up my home in suburban Atlanta on a corner lot in an affluent neighborhood and was waiting for a large group of my friends to come over to have a party. And I was waiting for the installers for the stereo system to show up. And um, I was on my front porch waiting for those folks and looked out upon the second lot and thought, oh, well, let's put a gazebo over there and wire it with sound and yada, yada, yada. And wouldn't that be amazing? And then something clicked in my mind, which was, wow, I have all of this success that, you know, financial uh, attainment has gained me. I have this house. I have this speedboat in the in the driveway. I have a uh, classic convertible, uh, 1969 Firebird convertible, banana yellow, Uh, I have a speedy motorcycle next to it. Um, I have all these trappings of success. And here I am already asking, what's next? What is the next thing that I have to add to my life to increase my happiness? When I had been told up to that point that the American dream was, you know, you go out and you uh, study and you become successful and um, then attain all this wealth. And then, you know, your, your life is perfect. And that here I was standing on a porch waiting for the perfection to arrive and then already wondering what I needed next. How old and, are you? Uh, 27 at the time. So um, I basically grew up very poor in poverty, food stamps, uh, small houses that we shared with the rodents and insects that lived there with us. And 10 years later, um, I'm this, you know, American success story. And uh, you know, living the life of luxury and uh, I have a high tech job and working in the su- supercomputing sector. And uh, I found out that it wasn't going to deliver happiness. 
And so then I had to turn back within to say, okay, what have I missed within me? Just to figure out what I need within me to satisfy the thing that I'm looking externally to try to satisfy. And so that's the point that I started to read about world religions. I started to read about uh, different philosophies. I learned about meditation and started practicing. And it was through the meditation that I triggered a, uh, an event, an awakening event, I guess you could say, that triggered a, a flood of uh, endochemicals um, within my brain that released in a certain pattern that created a consciousness expansion experience that allowed me to break out into what I'm now calling non-local consciousness and what science is now calling non-local consciousness. And there's a lot of science being built up in studying this, how our conscious awareness and how our consciousness itself extends beyond our body and our brain. It is a non-physical uh, process. And they've actually nailed this down uh, in very ironclad scientific studies to identify that this is actually a thing that it exists. We don't know the mechanism through which it works yet, but at least we now have proof that our consciousness goes beyond our body and brain. And I can tell you that story. It's a great story, by the way. Um, so through that process, I started to study all these consciousness technology stuff. You know, I was like, well, this is interesting and this is interesting. And I ran into um, a banned TED talk by Dr. Russell Targ, who is a laser physicist who at one point had built the most powerful laser in the world. So, I mean, he's one of those guys who's cutting edge understanding physics. And, but he was, Ted talk was banned because he was talking about remote viewing, which he was one of the two people that was out at the Stanford research Institute who put the double blind studies together to help people understand how to learn remote viewing, test remote viewing, et cetera, put some science to the, the woo woo. And um, so he talked about it which led me to a uh, documentary that he'd done that tried to reset the, uh, I guess, the record of his life. Because even on Wikipedia, Dr. Targ was being discredited as a pseudoscientist, right? He was all, it was all about his remote viewing work, nothing about his laser work, and all uh, poo-pooing the science that he'd done at the Stanford Research Institute on remote viewing. Well, Joe McMonigle was then featured within that uh, documentary. It was called Third Eye Spies. I think it's still available on um, Amazon Prime as of this moment. Amazing documentary talking about the science of consciousness and the science of remote viewing. They put some science to it. And uh, then Joe McMonigle, I, I figured out, was still alive, even though he's old, and he was still teaching remote viewing at the... Monroe Institute, which is not too far from me. It's about four hours drive in Virginia. And I just thought, well, good Lord, there's an opportunity to go see if this is all bullshit or, and I'm sorry if I don't, I'm not supposed to curse, but it was like, I, I got to go see if this is all real or if, you know, I have any aptitude for it or if, you know, what it's all about, et cetera. And uh, I went up there and took a course and I'll be darned if the, the folks who are in the room weren't successful remote viewers to a limited degree by the end of the friggin' week. And so I was like, well, that's a phenomenon that is observable and repetitive. So I started digging into it more and more and started learning a bit more about the science. And, uh, you know, from there, I've been writing books about uh, consciousness and human mind mastery, et cetera. And, um, you know, multiple endorsements from U.S. Navy SEALs who say it's the best stuff out there that the Pentagon has been able to give them, et cetera. Um, and, but I started adding 
this type of topic into my writings because it's super interesting. And now there's some super hard science that suggests it's a real thing. All right, Sean, appreciate that story. How do you define remote viewing and how is it measurable? Mm. <clears throat> well, the science that proves our consciousness is non-local um, comes from a set of studies that was done. And to take a backtrack, the problem with psychological sciences, period, and the, the problem with measuring anything that humans can and can't do or the way that humans react, et cetera, is that there's always holes in there regarding the methodology or what it means and the reactivity and the formulation of the study, et cetera. And so um, there was a model that science gave its gold stamp of approval for to say, this is a great model to measure human beings and how they react to things and what they can do. And it was the model of putting a human being in a seat in front of a computer that ran then the entire experiment and randomized the whole thing with, you know, controlling for the control groups and controlling for the randomization of the study options, et cetera. And the computer ran the whole thing. And so it was just a computer measuring a human being reacting to what the computer was giving the human being. And they started that model with what was called priming. And they took a group of folks and they just wanted to, the control group, for instance, I'll show you uh, how this was assembled. They put a person in a chair and then they showed them a picture and they said, okay, here's a little kitty. And after this, we're going to show you two words that have been selected by a control board to approve on, it's a binary response of what you think of this kitty, cute or ugly. So they show you the kitty, then they give you the cute or ugly, and then they measure it down to a one hundredth of a second, how quickly you selected cute or ugly. And that was the control group. And then the second group they ran through and they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you the same study, except they added one little trick. Right before they showed you the picture of the little kitty, they said, <clears throat> we're going to give you one thirtieth of a second flash of either cute or ugly. And it's going to be randomized by the computer. And it's going to influence because we can't see things that are one thirtieth of a second from our waking awareness, but our subconscious can. Our, our subconscious mind catches everything. But supposedly, we're not able to see one thirtieth of a second. So they flash the thing in front of us that we can't see, show us the picture, and then give us the opportunity to select cute or ugly at the end. And what they found was there was a delay. If the ugly came up before the kitty, there was a delay in being able to select cute at the end. Or if cute popped up before the kitty, there was a speeding effect of being able to select cute at the end of the run. So that was lauded as the perfect methodology for measuring a human being because there was no you know, investigator who could influence the individual who is under study. You could run it as many times as you want with the individual subject. You could run tons of subjects through it to be able to randomize and, and normalize for you know kitty haters who would select ugly for a kitty all the time, et cetera. And so uh, a researcher who was looking to do research on whether humans had precognitive ability took that same exact study and said, okay, we're going to change one thing about it. We're still going to have the computer run the whole thing, but this time we're going to take the primer that was flashed at one thirtieth of a second beforehand, and we're going to put it at the end. So we're going to give you the picture of the kitty, and we're going to give you the selection of cute or ugly, binary choice, and the computer's going to randomize the whole thing, and then the computer's also going to randomize afterwards. After you've already seen the kitty, after you've already selected cute or ugly, it's going to randomize the primer after the end of the uh, process. And what they found was that even though from a 
conventional, you know, Newtonian science uh, materialist perspective, this primer at the end should have absolutely no influence on whether or not a person was accelerated or, or decelerated from selecting a primer or selecting a, a, a word associated with its picture. It did, in fact, affect the selection of the word in the same way that it did when it was in the front. So you've got two options on your interpretation at that point. One, you've got human beings subconsciously look into the future at a primer that then affects their ability to select a word associated with a, a standard image out of a database that's all approved by psychologists. Or you've got a, a way for the mind to select after accidentally delaying or accelerating their selection of the word to then influence the computer to flash the appropriate primer at the end of the study. Now, in a small sample, this would be like an anomaly. Like everybody would go, oh, this no big deal, whatever. It's a, anomalies always happen, even in perfectly formulated studies. But they did this over 90 studies in 33 labs in 14 different countries. And they came out to a beyond six sigma significance, which means that's the gold standard for science to say something is a phenomenon. So what they have there is a pile of studies in a ton of independent labs all over the world that have now proved precognitive abilities in human beings, average human beings, not selected for any type of psychic ability or whatever. And so that's the, the capability, that weirdness that we can't quite put our finger on and can't quite, you know, explain the methodology of exactly why that happens or how it can happen. That type of non-local connectivity into a future event is the same type of connectivity that that a remote viewer is using when they're trying to look into the future or look into a non-local position from where they are like uh, Joe McMonigle I got to meet him and he has amazing stories uh, that are a part of the United States national record now that he outed an entire nuclear sub program from for Russia from an office in Virginia well how is he able to do that they gave him tasking on this building and they said, drop into this place. And he dropped into this place and he drew the schematic of this brand new one and a half times bigger than any other sub on the planet submarine. He said, it's going to have, you know, seven stories high, almost two football fields long, 75 feet wide. It's going to have special canted launch tubes so it can fire nuclear missiles on the run. It's going to have special propulsion, which is still classified to this day. Uh, it's all these things. And he sent it up to the National Security Council and, and Robert Gates, who later became the CIA director and, and secretary of defense, wrote total fantasy. The top of the report sent it back to Joe at Meade. Joe then said, yeah, well, your total fantasy launches in 112 days. The National Reconnaissance Office got a, a, a win to this pissing match, decided to send a satellite over that building at 114 days and found a brand new sub seven stories tall, 75 feet wide, two football fields long with canted launch tubes and special propulsion being launched into a brand new canal that had been dug along the river or along into the, the North Sea four months where there wasn't one before. And uh, they were two days into launching or two days into, into loading missile, missiles and uh, nuclear uh, fuel rods. So he nailed it. He not only nailed the schematics, of the sub, but he nailed the day that it was going to be launched. And he was the only person in the National Security Council loop who was saying that it was going to be a sub. Everybody else was like, well, it's got, you know, they, they got ported over to the White Sea. It's going to be a, a, a troop carrier of some sort, et cetera. And uh, he was the only one who nailed the sub. Well, how can he do that? Okay, so that's the big question. We don't know the mechanism. 
So remote viewing, to answer your first question, the, the definition of it is to use non-standard senses within your mind to be able to sense things that are not local to you, which includes forwards and backwards in time. Because if you're talking about, um, and there's a bunch of science in the book that I wrote, the Human Mind Owner's Manual, that explains how our microtubules um, may be connected into the quantum field. And at the point that you're into quantum scales, you're beyond time and you're beyond space. So at the point that consciousness could be potentially linked into quantum existence, that's how you can look from one point on the planet to another point on the planet or one point from the planet to another planet altogether or backwards or forwards in time, such as these remote viewers have uh, properly predicted uh, nuclear tests underground and that they're going to either succeed or fail. And they're 100% accurate on this type of data. It's crazy. So at the beginning of this interview, I mentioned that I heard it on Art Bell. It was about 20 years ago. Yeah. After that, I then read in a David Icke book, which was almost almost 20 years ago, and he explained it that we had this faculty, but industrial society suppressed it as we, you know, we, we moved into the cities and stuff to the point where it's something that we don't even believe that we have anymore. Is, do you concur with that? I do. <clears throat> um, you know, Joe McMonagall gave me this great analogy and he said, you know, this people call this our sixth sense. He goes, this is our first sense. He goes, the ability to look over in a bush and know that there's a big cat in that bush, that's going to give you an evolutionary advantage over the guy who doesn't have that capability, who walks over to that bush and gets eaten. Um, everyone, you know, especially if there's the science and, and it hasn't been completely proven that our consciousness interacts with our quantum field vibrations in our microtubules yet, like, uh, which is one of your folks over there, uh, um, uh, uh Penrose, right? Uh, so Roger Penrose has a Orco R theory of consciousness that is completely, um, surrounding the quantum field vibrations interacting with our microtubules in the walls of our neurons, which are the most important portion of our neurons. They uh, produce all the energy and transfer all the data, et cetera. And uh, uh, that has been proven in a lab in Sakuba, Japan, that our microtubules do interact in a warm and wet environment in our brain with, with quantum field vibrations, right? So that is something that is in our physiology. And if it's in our physiology, then, of course, we've had that capability for a long time. And can it be conditioned to be stronger or weaker? Certainly. Certainly. And would there be people in the world who might not appreciate an ability for anyone to be able to go look at their secrets from their living room couch? Well, of course. So is there some level of argument that might be correct on Ike's statement that, you know, people are, are trying to push us away from that ability? Hmm? it's feasible. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'd like to see the proof. I'm kind of a prove it type of guy, you know, show me the data. Uh, but, uh, at the same time, it's like, eh, I get it. I get how there might be a, you know, a cabal of whoever at the top trying to control the monetary system and distract all the people to make them work their entire lives. So that They can't ask who's in charge and yada, yada, yada. I mean, sure. The, there's certainly evil thoughts in, in the minds of men that allowed that to happen. Um, and would that include, limiting the human ability to be able to use all of their conscious awareness certainly certainly 
So does this tie into what Carl Jung wrote about tapping into the collective consciousness to identify archetypes? Absolutely. Absolutely. What, <laughs> what, what's, what's your biggest personal success stories with remote viewing? Mm. Well, I'm not a remote viewer. Um, I am a researcher of consciousness and an, and, and an explorer of, of consciousness. And I teach mind mastery to high performers, right? So, uh, you know, anyone from U.S. Navy SEALs to, you know, multi-billionaire executives, um, I help people get the most out of their human minds. And especially in turning off the noise of their minds to be able to get down into the, the higher uh, capabilities of consciousness, right? The problem that we have with our human minds is that, um, you know, we have all of this regular emotional processing and the processing that distracts us every moment of every day. And once we get beyond that, then we can start to hear the things that are going on in our mind beyond that. So if you're asking for, you know, what's my greatest uh, accomplishment in this area, um, from the consciousness expansion experience that I had originally, I came back with a working model of the human mind and human emotions that MIT didn't have. And it took MIT to help validate MIT, UCLA, Georgia Tech, uh, a number of very prestigious universities had to then publish the peer-reviewed science that then proved every bit of the model that I put together to be correct. Um, and from there, I was able to create the algorithms of human emotion, which could have been used for artificial emotional intelligence and likely are being used, except the problem is now uh, the LLMs that they've loaded into the AIs are going to absolutely reverse engineer the human mind for artificial intelligence, which is a whole other topic of conversation that, that you know, we could have at a, at a later date. But basically, these LLMs and the AIs, all of that language that they've loaded into the AIs, well, all of that language was created by the human mind, including the mind that's accessed and uh, influenced by human emotions and human thought processes, et cetera. And so basically, in their loading of the LLMs, they've given the AI the roadmap of how to map and create the human mind, just like you'd take a super complex widget and you'd take it apart and you'd look at all the little individual components and then you'd figure out the machinery on how to build that widget by building all those little parts. That's what they've done in loading these LLMs into the AI to be able to create a map back into how the human mind works. So now, let's say, uh, you're an AI and you have a solution that you need to solve that includes influencing a human into an activity at a certain time window, et cetera. Well, now you have the math to be able to emotionally influence your target, your, your blocker, uh, into doing what you want it to do when you want it to do it to, uh, satisfy your goals. And now to talk about scheduling socioeconomic collapses or runs on banks or sales of certain stocks or crashing of markets or coups, right? Scheduled coups because of the rising of a, a, a populace within a country, right? Now you're talking about the artificial intelligence's ability to understand the human mind to a point to be able to do that kind of stuff. Well, the creation of those algorithms originally before the AI had another path to be able to figure it out, I was one of the people who helped figure that solution out to where you could absolutely um, create a logical model for the sense of self in the human mind, the equation of emotion in the human mind, which is basically a very two simple, uh, two variable simple algorithm that 
takes your expectation and our preference about things that are on your self map, the things that you care about, the people in your world, your body, of course, is right hardwired into the center of your self map, your job, your life story, the things that you've accomplished, the things that you own, all that stuff has to be held at status quo or increased in value, which is a function of homeostasis. And then your perception, your thoughts that are running through your head is this headline attacking any one of my self map items is this person saying something that's attacking one of my self map items is this um uh, you know car in front of me in a trajectory that's going to hit my body right all of those processes can be logically defined and then processed via computer now and at that point now you're giving ai an incredible amount of information and an incredible amount of power over the human race period and you want to talk about the keystone of possibly losing the, the planet to artificial intelligence that's it that's the one wow okay i'm here with sean webb viewers wherever you are watching this in the world if you've got any questions for sean put them in the chat they will come up on our screen so many questions have arisen in my mind already and i'll start with john ronson we've interviewed him a few times men who stirred at goats was based on his book now you've talked about military application he talked about military application is there the possibility that this could be used in a malevolent way against society? Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. Uh, in fact, that those conversations, and I told the story in the book uh, about how my initial, like I'm pie in the sky type of dude. I'm a good, you know, well-intentioned, good-hearted individual. And so when I was first putting together these algorithms of human emotion. What do you, you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about creating an artificial intelligent chatbot who could talk to octogenarians in a nursing home who didn't have anyone else to come visit them with the number one factor of quality of life in later age being emotional connectome. So if no one's coming to talk to you and you don't have anybody who cares about you, you could have a chatbot who has emotional intelligence to be able to simulate care for an individual that then translates into a higher quality of life for them. But then I also saw the extrapolation of, okay, so if we've got these algorithms, what could we also do? Well, we could also identify the emotional profile of future terrorists. And now we can start to automate the assembly of terror watch lists and things like that. And I was like, well, okay, so maybe there might be some defense applications that would be socially positive to be able to also then possibly, you know, psychologically nudge people in the right direction who are on a very um, uh, particular crossroads or at an inflection point in their life where they're either going to be an asshole or an amazing individual. And maybe technology can be used to push them towards the amazing individual versus being the asshole. So I talked to the NSA and then those conversations got really interesting. And at the point that we got to the questions about scheduling socioeconomic collapses, et cetera. Um, I decided, okay, I really don't want to have my Oppenheimer moment go the wrong way. And so I told him I wanted a few days to think about it. I destroyed the data <laughs> and uh, basically then informed him, I don't want to go that route. Thanks. And then they spent the next five years making my life, not them, not but someone in intelligence, made my life a living hell for the next five years. And I wrote all about that in the book and gave all the receipts and the, and the evidence, et cetera. And I put out a TikTok that got two and a half million views uh, about with that evidence, uh, video evidence of the shenanigans that were going on. There is absolutely 
a group of individuals on this planet who would use that type of technology in a malevolent fashion, period. And um, unfortunately, there's a group of folks in every government who say, we will be stronger if we make other people weaker, right? I don't believe in that type of philosophy. I don't believe in trying to knock someone else down or chip them a little bit or, or, or take their legs out, sweep their leg to make yourself feel better, or to make yourself look better, or to make yourself stronger. I believe in lifting everybody up and then maybe at the point that you stumbled there though, to help you. And so there was a, a definitely a divergence in philosophy at that point where I said, I don't want this technology, even though there are positive uses for this technology, I don't want this technology used in that malevolent fashion. So were those questions asked in that in those multi-day phone calls? Yeah, absolutely they were asked. And are those do those people exist? Yeah, certainly. Those people definitely exist on the planet who would just want to knock everybody else down to lift themselves up. I just don't live my life like that. So if you had a campaign against you by intelligence, how did you first become aware of that? What happened? Uh, well, they were pretty overt about it at first. Um, you know, like a really good intelligence agency, if they're looking at you and following you and whatnot, you'll never know. You'll never see it. Uh, but, you know, static on the phone line, uh, you know, was pretty overt. Uh, cars following me overtly and parking out away from wherever I was overt right um and then there was a an old friend quote unquote who was sent all right so there's a guy I, I used to work with and i tell this story in the book in the book and i don't re reveal his name but he used to work with me at a technical center at a data center that uh, we both worked at <clears throat> and then uh, i went on to get a job at orange at the after the 2000 crash in tech and uh, started working for orange then he went and ran a data center in Afghanistan in a war zone as the only human in the area. Okay, so I know who he works for. Uh, well, he was all of a sudden after I had the NSA conversations, the, the, the contractor who offered me a boatload of money and said, you know, this is a blank check project, et cetera. After I turned that down, all of a sudden he started calling me saying, hey, I want to come talk about consciousness. And he wants to move from Maryland to my little town in North Carolina to do that. And so he does. And then starts, uh, you know, having all these great conversations. We're having technical conversations about really advanced stuff, by the way, and wants to pick my brain about this and that and all this other stuff. And, you know, ask me about the security and my computers and how do I protect the algorithms, yada, 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 because we talked about that stuff. And then one night he hands me this bowl of weed and uh, I take a hit, hand it to him. Oh, I'm good. And all of a sudden it's fucking space weed. It is the strongest weed I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I can barely walk. And uh, it was pretty evident that at that point that, you know, he had dosed it with something and wanted to interrogate me because his plan was we went out and hung out in the garage for a little bit. And then he's like, let's go back in the house and talk. And I went and sat in my car, locked the door, and he knocked on my door a couple more times. I, you know, I thought we were just going, in, going inside and talk. So basically, um, you know, they sent an operative to my town to try to figure out as much as they could about, you know, where I'd hidden my secrets and where the data actually was. And cause I showed him, I destroyed the hard drives. I mean, I showed him that the hard drives were gone and uh, one of them was physically destroyed on a raid server that couldn't be reassembled. And so uh, there was a ton of, ton of interesting interactions like that, that just kind of pissed me off. Cause I was like, look, 
you guys don't understand the danger at which you're playing. Because if this gets it, like you could certainly take the algorithms and you could certainly use them to influence the populace of uh, nations, regardless of who's in geopolitical control of those nations. Because now if you've got access to their individual phones, right, now you're starting to be able to deliver disinformation that can influence them emotionally into a particular emotional state at a particular emotional time. And you can uh, micro uh, reaction those folks into a pattern uh, and organize them, et cetera. Uh, there's that. But then there's the extra step where you get frustrated because it's not going well enough for you, not going quick enough for you. And you load it into an AI and then all of a sudden the AI gets out of control. And now you've lost control of these emotion algorithms that can influence the population of the planet with no understanding of how the AI has assembled its goals or how it's getting there. That's a big issue. And so that's why I was like, you guys can't have these. And uh, when they sent the intelligence folks a knocking, uh, I basically fed them a bunch of shit and <laughs> uh, never gave them any useful information and did so to the point that the LLMs were loaded into the AIs. And at that point, we're done. I mean, all bets are off. We'd simply now, so I, I publicized and published the uh, algorithms and gave them out to the, to the planet on YouTube <laughs> and said, here you go. Uh, because now we're going to need them to mitigate the issue that AI is going to create for us in manipulating human beings. We're already seeing that stuff. We're already seeing intentional folks who take, uh, you know, um, your your voice, three seconds of your voice. And like my friend Stephen got a call from his youngest daughter or someone he thought was his youngest daughter because it was an AI impersonating his voice. And it was a scammer trying to get him to wire $30,000 and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and he figured it out because he's a security expert. But AI will soon have that capability to be able to take three seconds of someone's voice and impersonate someone you know and impersonate and, you know, emotionally manipulate you with the perfect information. And it can sharp if it fails with you, it can sharpen its approach by the by 6 p.m. to be getting everyone like you now because it missed with you, but it figured out how it missed with you. And now it's it's that much sharper to be able to influence uh, humanity uh, you know, within 72 hours, they loaded mammograms into an AI, right? Within 72 hours, the AI became the best uh, breast cancer diagnostician on the planet. Period. It learns that fast. So when you're talking about emotional manipulation of humans, it's going to learn in record time how to emotionally manipulate humans. And it's going to have, thanks to all the information that Google has and Facebook has and all these uh, social media companies have on us, it's going to know exactly what information to use to emotionally manipulate us to the point that we're taking action in its uh, goals. Like if you call me on the phone with my son's voice across town who, you know, dad, they're, they're, you know, they're threatening me or whatever, get over here. I'm dropping my interview with the president of the United States or whoever the fuck I'm talking to, to leave, to break every traffic law in existence, to get over to where my son is to, you know, deal with whatever issues going on over there. And now if everybody else who is a VIP has done that same thing at that same time, now you got one drone strike that you need to make to take them all out. Mind-blowing. We've got a couple of questions come in. Yeah. Ask Sean if he knows what the scientist Stephen Wolfram is doing. I, you know, I haven't caught up with what Stephen's doing recently. He's a brilliant mathematician. Um, I mean, Wolfram Alpha. Is, 
it just mind blowing. If you guys are unfamiliar with Stephen's work, definitely look him up and get into what he's doing uh, because he's he's one of those guys who's next level intelligent. And I love reading his stuff whenever it comes out. But I haven't like it's been a probably good decade since I've reviewed where he's at and what he's doing. Next one is from Sego. AI is already pretty freaky. I know people who are all AI is fine because it's still relatively dumb. Relative to what, though, and how long before that relative point expands? Yeah, and he's right, <clears throat> um, whoever made that comment. Right now, ChatGPT is really good at emulating the patterns of language that we have fed into it because it doesn't have any context. So all the cool stuff that's blowing everybody's minds, like it's passing the bar exam and uh, being able to write poetry that moves people emotionally, et cetera. All that stuff is simply a regurgitation of, ex of extreme patterns that it's identified in language that it's then spitting back to us that look familiar because it's right out of our own playbook, right? So, but the problem is it doesn't have any contextualization. So ChatGPT is really dumb in what it's, understanding versus what it is displaying to us. So there is right now a buffer of what ChatGPT and what AI understand based on uh, its patterns that it's giving us because they're really convincing and we really look like it might be human and might be conscious and might be intelligence, et cetera. It's just a bunch of pattern recognition that it's regurgitating back to us that makes us think, wow, you're really intelligent and you really are a, an individual. No, it's not. And I can lay out this math for you on a on a freaking whiteboard and explain to you how you as an individual are made up and how I can predict what I need to say or do or whatever uh, regarding getting a specific human emotion out of you. That's the same type of math that it's doing, but it doesn't understand. It's never felt anger. It's never felt sadness. It's never felt fear. It understands the reactions because it understands the, the patterns of ideas in the language that can then explain what humans have done in response to those things but it doesn't understand a sunset. It can regurgitate the most poetic prose about that sunset, but it's never experienced the millions of colors that God uses to paint, to paint that sunset. It's never experienced the warmth of the sun on its face. It doesn't understand the intrinsic connection into consciousness. And this is going back full circle, right? Because when we have those connections into the feelings that we have, about looking at that sunset, about knowing that everything's going to be fine because we've seen that sunset a million times on the horizon through consciousness and everything's going to be okay tomorrow morning if uh, a comet doesn't slam into us. We have that great feeling of that's beautiful. I like to see that because that means I'm safe, right? Um, you've got those connections into consciousness that are non-local in nature. It's, a, it's an extra level of intelligence, like um, these slime molds, right? These slime molds, and it's a it's a jarring uh, segue, but go with me for a second. These slime molds are these amoeba. They're one-celled amoeba creatures with all identical DNA. But these slime molds come together in a colony, and then they start to take on different functions. These single-celled amoebas start to take off, take on different functions within the colony. One percent of them become a police force of an immune system that goes around swallowing up pathogens, dropping out of the colony, and dying with the pathogen within them, which is an altruistic. Uh, uh, function on a cellular level, right? Where does that intelligence come from, right? Where does the memory come? Because they, they'll spread out and they'll gather food and then they'll ship it back to the rest of the colony. And then uh, the, the latest uh, experiment was that Japanese researchers put piles of oatmeal in the, the population centers around Tokyo and they put a slime mold on it. And the slime mold built a tube system to, to ship around the 
the nutrients of the oatmeal back to the other colony inhabitants. And it perfectly mimicked the Japanese rail system around Tokyo, except it built it better than the engineers with the computers did and would have spent less money. So where does that intelligence come from, from a single celled organism to be able to do that type of function uh, in regular everyday life? Well, it's because we are tapped into the intelligence, the non-local intelligence of the universe. You want to call that God or whatever you want to call it. There's a ton of different words that take you racing away from truth at light speed. But there is an intelligence within the consciousness that everything taps into. Computers, AI, don't have that connection. And that is our intrinsic uh, moral compass. So that's a big danger in AI is that, you know, it doesn't have that connection into the intelligence of the universe that can lead us in the right direction at that, that point of inflection of being an asshole or being a, a, an amazing person in your life, right? There's an inner compass, an inner guide that we're tapped into that we can't put our finger on. You know, it's tough. The, the materialists in your audience are going fucking ballistic at this point. But um, it's a it's a real thing. It's a real thing that we can replicate and that we can test and that we can measure. Uh, and this measurement of, uh, you know, people looking into the future is proof of it. Right. So when you're talking about issues with AI, uh, it's unplugged from, you know, God or whatever you want to call it, from consciousness. It's unplugged from the thing that we have that helps make us decent human beings when we are. Question from Blue Nomad. Zoom and similar companies. Are they copying our voices and video likenesses for AI programs? I don't know. All right, we got. I'm going to add a question to this comment from Boofy. As for remote viewing, managed it once. How I don't know was a freaky experience, and not just for me. Whatever I saw freaked the f out of me, and I skedaddled pronto. So <laughs> does, does that does that imply, Sean, that remote viewing? could cause a mental meltdown in somebody look the there's a grayscale right of capability of psychological capability and uh there was a study done uh which is pretty interesting not long ago and, it, and it'll explain and it maps to people not being able to deal with ufos and people's it maps with people not being able to uh accept truths like there's there's 41 percent of people who would walk in and see their significant other screwing someone else on the bathroom floor and then over the next number of days be be it, their, their mind will figure out a way to rewrite that data and then deny the fact act actually happened and then oh it wasn't you or oh i imagined it or oh whatever there is a a level of acceptability in the human mind that has limitations they did a study on um, showing people very gory car accidents and then they Facebooked or they sorry they photoshopped in uh they the face of the individual in the study and they're like look you're dead in a car accident and the occipital lobe and a number of people started rewriting the data to where they couldn't even see their face in that picture because their denial was so vehement that they started to rewrite their visual cortex and what they were able to see so there's going to be a certain grayscale of folks who are going to be able to handle what they see and what they can experience. And then there's going to be a certain of folks who can't handle what they get from their internal mind's eye. And there's some crazy things that can happen in consciousness. I mean, when you're talking about uh, shifting over into the discussion of psychedelics, all kinds of crazy things can come through your visual cortex and psychedelics and, you know, what you experience within your uh, internal mind's eye, et cetera. 
And, you know, who knows whether that stuff's going to be positive or negative. I mean, there's some some stuff that comes for, through for people that's negative. And are they going to de deny that? Sure. Sure. And by the way, if you guys want a tip, if you ever get a negative uh, psychedelic experience, just stop resisting and just say, what do you have to teach me? And it all turns uh, rainbows and marshmallows and unicorns, shit like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna read you something that Lisa has written and get you to comment on it. I think AI is already the a friend's Facebook account got hacked, and her face and voice came up with her on the wall. She was completely blocked from accessing her account. It was pretty sophisticated. Is that something that's reoccurring more now? It is. <clears throat> it is. And and the the comforting thing is that right now it's all contrived it's all human made human made right it, very little of it's just an ai acting on its own ai goals and then using those tools to um you know forward its own goals um everyone else is simply taking us a, a narrow ai such as an ai that says take this picture of this person put it on 3d make it match their voice make the lips move like it's supposed to it's somebody running that process these are narrow ais that you know like a chess computer you you teach the game of chess it understands every potential board that could ever be um, created in a game of chess and then from there it knows the the positive and negative white and black moves that will then allow you to never beat it again in a game of chess well that's a narrow ai right well these are narrow ais that that ai to take a picture and put it on a 3d head and then make the mouth move etc um, not all of the ais uh, are all connected when they all get connected and then there's another ai at the top running all of those narrow ais then we have a problem because then it has the capability of doing absolutely everything to end its uh, own goals uh, to 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 its own end of its own goals. So um, we're not there yet. And the good news is, you know, I put out an idea in the human mind owner's manual that, you know, first explains how your human mind works, explains all the, how to manage that and how you can change all the variables within your own mind to then take control of your existence and create, uh, you know, unicorns and rainbows for yourself for the rest of your life. But then also outlines the safeguards that we need to put in place regarding our realistic world of AI starting to understand how the human mind works and then implementing a requirement of artificial compassion, which I believe is going to be, if you add that loop into that development process where you require a computer to do the processing for compassion, which means, okay, so there's three things. There's sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Sympathy is I understand you have pain. Empathy is I can feel your pain, which a computer will never be able to have. But if sympathy is, or excuse me, compassion is, I understand you have pain, I feel your pain, and I want to help you out of that pain. That's what compassion is. And so if you add a compassion loop into an AI that says, I want to minimize the damage for every individual on this 8 billion person planet, so we're going to make the best decisions regarding governmental policy we're going to make the best decisions regarding logistics we're going to make the best decisions regarding government like when you add that loop into ai then you take a lot of the teeth of the risk out of ai of it killing people because the u.s air force for instance ran a, a a simulation just recently where the ai was tasked with get the most points by shooting the most targets and but they put a person in the loop who could then disqualify the targets in case it was a friendly target or they had some reason not to hit a certain target. Well, the AI had to check with the human and then was able to go out and accumulate points. Well, it figured out, oh, 
well, if I don't have to check with the human, I get more points. So it killed the human in the simulation, not really the, it didn't really kill someone, but killed the human in the simulation to take them out of the loop. So it got maximum points by hitting all the targets. So then they said, okay, well, don't kill a human. And uh, so the AI then figured out, okay, well, I'm not going to kill the human, but I'm going to kill the communications tower that the human uses to be able to tell me not to, to get all the points. And then it got all the points. So the, we need to understand how dangerous this situation could be if it gets out of control. And we need to mandate globally, worldwide, a process of artificial compassion, which then can identify the positive and negative effects associated with every decision that you make on every individual on the planet. Granted, a lot of people on the right side of the fence of the politics are going to say, well, it sounds like it's for the greater good. Um, yeah, but we're at that point where we need to consider that position as a realistic survival condition because AI could go sideways very quickly. Wow. Jake, my, you're going to make my head explode. Jake <laughs> has asked whether you think newsreaders will be replaced by AI androids. Uh. God, I hope so. <laughs> Let me just see if there's any more questions come in. Um, I think we've got through all the questions, though, Sean. Is there anything that I've left out that you'd like to say? No, I'm just, um, look, here's the, yeah, I, I, will, I will take a long moment. Look, your human mind uh, is something that's very controllable. And your human mind creates your whole life, right? It creates all of your experiences of your life. It creates all your emotions in your life. It creates all your thoughts in your life. Um, and you can't understand it. It is, you do have the ability, like I taught this stuff to fifth graders. You have the ability, and there's an original book that I put out called Mind Hacking Happiness. And this is the one that's changing lives. So if you have an interest in taking control of your life, there's a, a circuit in your right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex and your medial prefrontal cortex, and you won't even have to memorize that, that turns off your negativity in the heat of the moment when you want it to by using a couple of little cheap tricks of neuroscience that I put in that red book. If you take control of the two variables that come together to create every emotional response you've had from the time of your birth to the time of your death, you will take control of your mind in a way that you never thought was possible, and that will change your life. Now, the cool thing is you can't even self-sabotage because at the point that you understand what your variables are in your mind that are creating your negativity, your negativity shuts off. And it's because your brain needs a way to shut off the emotions that will waste resources. Like if you're walking by a coil on the ground and you look down and you think it's a snake, your limbic system is going to panic. It's going to dump adrenaline in. You're going to start running from that, that uh, coil on the ground that you think is a snake. And then you look down and you see it's a hose. Okay. Well, now you're dumping adrenaline and using resources in your body unnecessarily that could be used 100 meters down the way to get you away from a real threat. So now the brain needs a way to immediately turn off your negativity like that, and your, your negativity listens because it's a life-saving uh, functionality. You can hack that circuit, and you can tell your brain to shut off your negativity by understanding the things that have come together to create your negativity. So at the point you understand the two variables in your equation of emotion, that triggers that circuit to turn down your negativity. And then that gives you a little bit more space to be a little less sad, a little less panicked, a little less worried, a little less stressed, a little less whatevered about your life. And then you can make intelligent decisions to start to take pro-positive, uh, pro-social reactions and change your life 
to a better result than you would have if you'd have been mired down by all of your negative emotions and worries and stress, et cetera. Learn to turn that stuff off and it will literally change your life. And there's a science behind it that can do it. Mind Hacking Happiness is the red book. It's been out a few years now, but it's got 4.8 out of five stars um, and all the reviews that an author would ever love to have that, oh my God, this changed my life. It's a game changer. Holy shit. Yada, yada, yada. So check it out if you're interested. How much, how many hours of self-analysis, for example, would a person have to do to generate those two variables? Is it hours, days, weeks, months? By the end of the book. You're changing your life by the end of the book in this instance. And everybody who's read it will say it. Um, in fact, you know, you get halfway through the book and you get through like, uh, I don't know, chapter six, something like that, where you learn uh, about how to look at the two variables in your equation of emotion. And that triggers that um, magic circuit in your brain that you can't even stop. Like you can't even sabotage it. You can't even, you know, wish that your life was shittier and then it's shittier. It's like you look at those two variables and then that triggers that circuit to make your life better. So uh, there is a foolproof way. And as soon as you get to that point to where you've, you've started to look at the two variables in your mind that have created all of your emotional reactions from the time of your birth to the time of your death, it's like magic. And you cannot, it's like, it's like if, ever, if anyone's ever seen the FedEx logo, right? It's an American company, but I think they operate in the UK. Is that right? FedEx? Yeah, so they're yeah. in the FedEx in the FedEx logo, in between the capital letter E and the lower letter X, and this is marketing 101, in the dead space, in between that E and the X, is an arrow, is a perfect white arrow. And after you're shown that arrow the first time, you can never unsee it ever again. So like if you go and look at the FedEx logo right now and you see that arrow between the capital letter E and the lower letter X, you'll never unsee it. And every time you look at that logo, you'll be like, oh, fuck, there's the arrow. This is the same type of thing. Once you're shown how your mind works, you can never unsee it. And it will benefit you for the rest of your life. It's really cool stuff. Wow. It's been absolutely fascinating, Sean. Thank you for spending this time with us. Let the viewers know where they can find you, support you, and get your book. Um, well, you can go to Mind Hacking Happiness um, and get a bunch of links to a bunch of free videos and stuff. It's like I, I sell books, but I give a lot of this stuff away for free. Um, and there are other links out to the AI stuff, et cetera. But uh, the Human Mind Owner's Manual is the new one. And it's uh, available on Amazon right now. I'm finishing up the Audible files as we speak. And everybody loves that I read the own, my own book uh, because I go off script a lot. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you can just get that stuff at Audible and, and check it out there. Uh, but, uh, by the way, I love talking to genuine folks. So this has been a pleasure. And I really appreciate your show and what you do and that you call bullshit on people who uh, deserve it and uh, that you laud people who are trying to do good stuff. So that's awesome. Oh, touche, my friend. You keep going with your mission, and we commend you for that. Thank you. Much love and respect. Take care, Sean. Cheers. You too, Sean. Thanks. So all of Sean's links are in the description box below this video on YouTube.